0: The International Science Radio Show.
1: We have a bouncer and the doors of perception.
0: <laughs> the good, the bad, the
1: ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myth, the truth, toxicology,
0: astrosismology.
1: Magnetism, the dark side. Genetically
0: engineered potatoes. Planetoid.
1: Planetoid.
0: I love that word. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science in the cracks through your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, we'll feature new elements, bacteria that count, blindsight, and deja vu all over again. And in the studio with me is Patrick Ruby. Patrick, is there something new to add to the table of elements?
0: There is something new to add to the table of elements. Um, I remember being at school... And well, agonising over the periodic table for my chemistry exams. In um, year 10 it was, I think. And now, students will have to agonise over one more element. A team led by Sigurd Hoffmann at the Centre for Heavy Iron Research, which is a research centre in Germany, have now added an extra element to the periodic table, which is element 112, or 112. Um, They did this. They created this element, or synthesized this element, I should say, by using a 120-meter-long particle accelerator, which fired a beam of charged zinc atoms at lead atoms. So the nuclei of these two elements merged, and they made the nucleus of this new element, element 112. This element hasn't been named yet. That's one of the um, issues that they're still working on. They've had a couple of preliminary names. One is ununbium or ununbium, depending on your pronunciation, which is actually de- derived from the figures 112 in Latin. Un-un-bium. How clever. Um,
1: so they get naming rights if they discover it. But mm-hmm. wasn't this like this is the validation of the original discovery? This is not actually the discovery of the element. This is the validation.
0: This is. Um, this element had been. Thought to have been in existence since the late 1990s, and it's taken this long to actually repeat experiments to accumulate data that they've actually found this element. They've found four atoms, or they've observed four atoms, and what happens is this element, the nucleus of this element, is so unstable that it decays within milliseconds of being created, and it releases an enormous amount of energy, and this energy is red using um, a, a special reading machine. And that way they're able to reconstruct the nucleus and prove that they actually made four atoms of this thing.
1: So they get the signature of 112. One, mm-hmm. Unbium. Unbium. Un-un-bium.
0: Is the working name. Unbium. It's catchy. Mm. Well, I suppose when you're spending all your time in a lab trying to accelerate particles and create something new, perhaps you don't spend as much time on thinking of a catchy name.
1: Well, I guess the name is probably all you get because you're not going to get a Nobel Prize and you're so far, because it only exists for milliseconds, there's not a lot of chemistry you can do with it.
0: However, there are scientists that argue that the technology is useful because the machine you use to actually read the signature from the decaying atom is actually used to read signatures from other nuclear activities. Uh, Dr. Michael Hotchkiss, who is a nuclear scientist with the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation, has advocated this technique of making and reading the signatures of new elements. He's actually nominated a name himself. Um, He's nominated the ancient Greek philosopher... Empedocles.
1: Of course he did. Empipedocles because it rolls off the tongue so easily. Mm,
0: much more than Anundium, I suppose. However, this wouldn't be the first time an unusual name has been picked for an element. Um, in the 1940s, when a flood of elements were discovered, which were heavier than the heaviest traditional elements that can exist naturally, like uranium, when these elements were synthesized in a lab they were given names such as einsteinian californian and Darmstadium.
1: terrific so what what was the name of the city this was uh, confirmed in
0: well i don't have a city here i just no, have just germany so maybe we germanium have, we already have germany we have germany we have germanium how about deutschlandium <laughs> <to> difference?
2: <laughs>
1: well, well Yes, yes. Uh, with more serious note, we, of course, have um, a new male contraceptive from China.
0: That's very serious.
1: Yes, particularly in China. Uh, in China, they rather not use female-oriented contraception.
0: I wonder why that is.
1: Hmm, Maybe I wonder why there's why not as many females. Or maybe the females don't get as much say. I don't know. Mm. But their options have been limited to vasectomy, condom, and withdrawal, which, of course, none of which is, is terribly attractive. Vasectomy has the problem of, that it's hard to reverse. In fact, sometimes it's irreversible. So what they've gone for is similar to what, the, the, after all, the contraceptive pill for women is female hormones. Mm-hmm. In this case, they're looking at injecting male hormones, testosterone. Mm-hmm. So they've done a clinical trial with over a 1,000 healthy, fertile Chinese men aged 20 to 45. Each participant had fathers at least one child in the two years before the study and a normal medical history. And they all had female partners between 18 and 38 years of age with normal reproductive function. So they're given a monthly injection of testosterone in tea seed oil for 30 months.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Results showed a cumulative contraceptive failure, let's say that again, Their partners got pregnant at a rate of 1 per 100 men in the 24-month trial. No serious adverse events were reported, and reproductive function returned to the normal fertile range in all but two participants.
0: What was it like? Is there information on what it was like in the controls? What was the fertility like in the controls compared to the group with the injected testosterone?
1: Uh, Unfortunately, there's not a direct link to the paper, so I don't have that information. Oh, okay. And the other problem with this study is that this is China. Mm -hmm. So how do they tell the reproductive success of either the controls or the people in the group when they're only allowed to have one child and you have to have had one child to be in the group?
0: And there's no special dispensation for subject members, is there? Precisely. To have more than one child. It'd be interesting to know a bit more about the science about that, because um, we know a little bit about where testosterone comes from. We know that um, it's the hypothalamus and the pituitary gland at the base of the brain, which is the main hormone center for the body. And the pituitary, it's the anterior pituitary specifically, secretes two hormones called follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. Now, in women, these hormones are responsible for regulating the menstrual cycle. Um, Things change a little bit when a woman becomes pregnant um, because these hormones get secreted by other areas at the same time by the corpus luteum. But in men, follicle-stimulating hormone is important in going to um, the testes and causing sperm production, and luteinizing hormone is important in going to another area of the testes and causing testosterone secretion. So we know this basic science behind how testosterone is made, but it could possibly be that there's a negative feedback thing coming in here where if you get a high amount of testosterone, you stop making more. And maybe it's possible that that could be causing the reduction in fertility, I suppose.
1: Well, the reason there's not more information is that this is the Endocrine Society's Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism, JCEM, and it's a matter of waiting for that to be published.
0: Oh, I see. So we have to hang on tenderhooks for the results of the study. When you're talking about bacteria and you use the word count, I guess you assume that You're trying to count the amount of bacteria that you're testing. However, now bacteria are counting something else for you. At Boston University, at Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, so this is pretty big stuff, biological sensors have been synthesized, bacteria that act as biological sensors in order to measure the amount of toxin that they're exposed to. Now, this is uh, research that was done by James Collins, a professor at Boston University, um, and it has been published in the Journal of Science recently. What they've actually done is they've taken a common bacterial strain, Escherichia coli. Um, e. coli is some- e. coli is something that you typically find in your stomach. It's part of your natural gut flora. And they've injected it with a molecule which contains two DNA sequences. And that in turn behaves like switches. The first switch turns on proteins that physically flip a piece of DNA, um, and that is turned on by a bit of sugar. So you get exposure to sugar, and this protein flips the DNA immediately. It happens in a process in, a, in about a minute or so. And then there's a second switch which flips another section of DNA over, but it takes about 10 to 15 hours, um, and it responds to light and darkness. So it's like a long long-term timer, um, and then uh really quick timer. And what you've, what they've done is they've engineered that the bacteria, once these proteins have flipped the DNA three times, a switch goes on, which makes the bacteria fluoresce, which is um, connected to something called green fluorescent protein. Then the bacteria can tell that it's taken exactly three times for this bit of DNA to flip, and the bacteria light up. So you might be thinking, well, what's the point of this? Well, from a microbiology perspective, it's quite uh, revolutionary in the sense that bacteria tend to be very um, reactive in terms of once something's done, it switches them on, and that's the end of it. Like one stimulus equals one response. In this way, they're actually able to quantify the stimulus. So if you're exposed to a toxin, which is then going to cause the DNA to flip once, Um, causing it to flip three times actually helps you to quantify how much toxin that particular bacteria has been exposed to. Now, it's very basic and, you know, getting it to flip three times before it switches on isn't very helpful right now, but um, it can be used to show um, the exposure of toxin to bacteria um, when it's developed to give a better... Uh, prediction of concentration in the long run, and that's something that's very useful to actually use a biological signal to quantify the amount of a substance.
1: So this will be used in bioassays when they have little um, detectors in little miniature petri dishes on on uh, what do you call them um, on
0: glass. Mm-hmm. It could very well be used for that. Uh, bioassays currently in medical practice are automated. Um, except for very specific ones which may look at um, specific assays such as cortisol when you're looking at hormone deficiencies in someone. Then they'll need someone to come out and actually do it. an assay which changes colour and tells you the amount of cortisol you've got. While I don't think that you're going to push towards converting computers into bacteria and decomputerizing computerizing tests, this could be very useful for quantifying things that um, can't be tested so easily, I suppose, by computer assay.
1: A story from the Garvin Institute, where they found something about the way the brain heals itself, and the action of, they found that basically, the brain has its own anti-inflammatory molecule that it uses when it wants to do repair, and it might be what's going wrong, or at least part of what's going wrong in a chronic neurodegenerative diseases like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's. So doctors... Bryce Vissell and Andrea Abdupranato, published in the International Journal, Stem Cells. Mm. So what they did was they triggered rapid degeneration in the brains of mice, which was immediately followed by a very rapid regenerative response. So they want to know how this healing response could occur so quickly and so effectively after acute degeneration. And what they found were high levels of a molecule known as activin A, wherever regeneration occurred. So, active A seems to be something that's released from nerve cells, and it obviously was playing an important part. So, they triggered neurodegeneration, they hurt the brain, mm-hmm. and at the same time, they blocked active A. with a dramatic difference. Regeneration all but ground to a halt. Mm-hmm. So, okay, active A is working to allow regeneration. How's it working? Well, they thought it's probably blocking inflammation after neurodegeneration or injury. So after the brain's hurt, there would normally be inflammation, but this is blocking it. So they confirmed this guess by introducing another anti-inflammatory molecule while blocking active A, And as they guessed, the substitute anti-inflammatory allowed healing to occur. So inflammation is the body's way of trying to clear up a mess. And they've shown that if uncontrolled, it seems to be the very thing that prevents healing of the brain.
0: Mm-hmm. Inflammation has been indicated in a lot of diseases, such as rheumatoid arthritis is an inflammatory disease. Asthma is a fairly common inflammatory disease. Um, In the brain specifically, multiple sclerosis is also due to inflammation. Um, I think they they believe that the cell that's responsible for starting it, or at least um, initiating um, one of the large parts of the inflammatory cascade are, thing, are cells called microglia. Now, um, when you think of the brain, there's quite a few cells occupying that space. The mo- the most important ones we think, or we think the the ones that do all the actions of the brain, are called neurons. But they're also supported by a number of other cells. They're supported by cells called glia, collectively. Um, some of these glia will nourish the neurons and keep them alive, Um, Other glia are involved in myelinating them so that their signals travel at the right speed. And then there are things called microglia, which are like little macrophages. And macrophages are cells that your immune system uses to clean up mess. Um, And they're important in initiating an inflammatory cascade. Um, And in conditions like multiple sclerosis, it's the microglia that go a bit haywire and start breaking down um, myelin, and that way your, your cells don't fire the way they should do. Um, so in terms of information in the brain, um, there's several things that can go wrong with the systems that we've got in place.
1: Exactly, and that's, that's exactly what they're saying. So they think that this chronic inflammation is providing a harmful feedback loop, which preventing regeneration and contributing to progressive decline. So... There are a lot of studies showing that people who take non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs have a lower risk of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. So their next step is to investigate that inflammation is blocking regeneration in Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, and motor neuron disease, and whether active A, this natural substance the brain is producing, and any derivatives they can make from it, could be potential therapeutic new drugs.
0: Have you ever had the feeling, Ian, that You've seen something, but you just can't pinpoint where you've seen it. Again? Yes, again. Deja vu. Uh, Matrix, by the the way, was one of my favorite films, and the whole black cat deja vu thing really really spoke to me. Um, But anyway, Alan Brown, psychologist at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas, has been studying the phenomenon. And uh, one of the current theories that's out there that um, is trying to explain deja vu is that deja vu is actually um, a moment that has been triggered by a conscious recognition of a visual cue. So what's happened is you've seen something a couple of minutes before and then you see something again which triggers the memory before you've actually processed it completely. And that's why you get the feeling of deja vu, like you've seen something before, but you're just not quite sure what it is. Alan Brown tested this with a bunch of subjects, Southern Methodist University in Dallas, by making a cryptic pattern appear on a computer screen in front of the subjects, and then following that with an unfamiliar symbol. Asking, and then asking the question, have you encountered the symbol before? And for some subjects, the cryptic, cryptic pattern that appears on the computer first had the symbol hidden in it. So you get the cryptic pattern where you can't quite see what's in it with the symbol hidden within it. Then you get the symbol, and then you're asked, did you see the symbol, or have you encountered it before? Now, there's about 35 milliseconds between the cryptic pattern and the symbol. Um, so what it's doing is it's teasing your memory and not really giving it a lot, a lot of time to be processed. They found that with 144 test subjects, two dozen university students said they had seen the symbol before the experiment about 22% of the time when the particular signal, uh, symbol had been put inside the cryptic pattern. So 22% of them admit to having seen it before, but they're not quite sure where they saw it. With uh, Students that didn't have the teaser signal symbol put inside the pattern, only 10% or less admitted to having seen the signal before.
1: Well, hold on. So those 10% were lying, or they were just wrong?
0: Yes, it could have been either way. They were
1: just wrong. So people are getting deja vu even when they haven't seen it before, and only Mm -hmm. twice as many... 20% 20% you were saying roughly.
0: Yep. Well, I suppose the question is, is that significant? Is that significant enough to be an explanation? Mm, that I they really that... did
1: see it before, and therefore that's why they say they saw it before. Well, the other th- <laughs> the other interesting thing <laughs> What's about What's happened that to the
0: rest is, of them? Um, 80% of the volunteers said that they were confused about whether they'd seen the symbol or not. Um, and half had said that they had a déjà vu experience in the lab, but... This is half of all the students, not just. The, uh, this is including the ones that had seen um, the particular symbol which is hidden inside the cryptic pattern. Most volunteers claim that they normally experience déjà vu twice a year or less. So I suppose you, you're dealing with a population of people that normally experience déjà vu and you put them in a setting and a certain percentage of them experience déjà vu half of them experience déjà vu, 22% of them have a reason to, and about 10% of them don't, according to this study. Anyway, it's all adding to the theory that, or collecting data for the theory that déjà vu is involved with subconscious processing of images. Um, And this particular team is now planning to take the research to another level by using Mm -hmm. virtual reality to immerse students in an environment and then bombard them with signals to see if the déjà vu experience is repeated.
1: Well, I find this fascinating because this unconscious processing of images, this is uh, related to blindsight because what we're talking about is it's it's the unconscious and the conscious mind Mm -hmm. communicating indirectly. So your conscious mind knows, it just has a feeling that there is... I've seen that before. I don't remember seeing it I don't know why I think I've seen it. It doesn't make sense to me. But your unconscious is going, you've seen it before.
0: Blindsight itself is a really interesting phenomenon because if you look at visual pathways, most of our visual input, most of the light that goes in through our retina and travels down our optic nerves goes to this little part of the brain called the lateral geniculate nucleus which then sends these um, nerve fibers to the back of our brain, our visual cortex, which creates the images that we see, the world around us. However, not all of it goes this way. Some of it goes via different pathways. They go to things called the pretectal areas, which are areas in smaller parts of our brain, like the midbrain, and around the back of it is an area called the superior colliculus, which is involved in doing reflexes, such as someone throws a ball at you, without even thinking about it, you know where it is, you know it's coming at you pretty fast, you duck or you catch it. That's part of a reflex which doesn't actually involve um, a lot of conscious visual processing. And people with blind sight uh, may have lesions or uh, disturbances in the main visual area, so the lateral geniculate nucleus and and the part of the pathway which is processing the full image. But because you're still getting some sort of visual input in, which is registered by some part of your brain, um, people may actually be blind and yet not bump into objects when they're walking. They're able to sense objects and walk around them. Um, a really fascinating phenomenon. Not sure if it has much to do with deja vu.
1: Well, it does because deja vu, as you've just described, the experiment is these people having an unconscious sense of something that they didn't consciously see. So their eyes took in the pattern, but their conscious mind didn't perceive it. But the unconscious part of their brain did and told them about it when it came up again. So it's again, your unconscious mind is encompassing more of your senses and is processing the information that it doesn't pass on to your conscious mind. It's an indicator that maybe a lot of what's going on in our heads isn't available normally to our conscious mind until we need it. I mean, look, the blind side is a, is a good example because you can put this to use. Have you ever suffered from domestic blindness where there's stuff you've put down, your keys or something, and you're pretty sure they're probably in plain view because you would, wouldn't would put them anywhere else, but you can't see them because it's your house, it's your place, and you everything looks familiar And you just can't see them.
0: Yes. I've had that several times before. I I put it down to personal stupidity on more than one occasion. But I I get your point. But
1: my point is there's a way around that, using blindsight. So this is is what I do when I have that problem,
0: Mm
1: -hmm. is I know my eyes are taking in the information, right? My eyes are taking it in, and somewhere in my unconscious is that information. Consciously, I can't see it i search my place. I can't find my keys. But I've seen them. I must have because they've got to be there, right? Mm -hmm. So what I do is I put out my hand and I pretend I have the magic power to detect it psychically. Now, I don't close my eyes like a real psychic would because I'm cheating. I'm trying to use the information from my eyes in a different way. I'm trying to use my unconscious information. So if I reach out... And psychically, you know, go for the feeling. Where is it? I get a feeling for where it is. I can usually find it. After I've given up doing things consciously, it's a bridge to the unconscious using this sort of magical thinking. But, of course, if I close my eyes, it wouldn't work because I don't have psychic powers. (laughs) Uh, There's no magic there. It's all unconscious talking to my conscious. And try it. If you lose your keys, you lose something. Pretend you have psychic powers, but keep your eyes open Hmm. so it will work. And it gives you a high, it's not going to guarantee it, but it gives you an extra chance Hmm. so you don't get locked out.
0: Interesting words of wisdom.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2scr.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or if you'd like to contribute to Diffusion and hear your own voice communicating science on radio, then send email to diffusion at 2scr.com, that's diffusion at 2scr.com, or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com, that's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program was Patrick Ruby. Diffusion has been produced in the studios of 2SCR Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.
2: There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, and protactinium, and indium, and gallium. <sighs> and iodine and thorium and thulium and thallium There's yttrium, eterbium, actinium, rubidium and boron, gadolinium, niobium, iridium and strontium and silicon and silver and samarium and bromine, lithium, beryllium and barium There's holmium and helium and hafnium and erbium and phosphorus and francium and fluorine and terbium and manganese and mercanium, molybdenum, magnesium, dysprosium and scandium and cerium and cesium and lead, praseodymium and platinum and plutonium, palladium, promethium, potassium, polonium and tantalum, technetium, titanium, tellurium and cadmium and calcium and chromium and curium. There's sulfur, californium and fermium, berkelium and also mendelevium, einsteinium, nobelium and argon, kryptonium, radon, zinc, and rhodium and chlorine, carbon, cobalt, copper, tungsten, tin and sodium. These are the only ones of which the news has come to Harvard. And there may be many others, but they haven't been discovered. Hydrogen, uh- and hydrogen, and nitrogen, and and nickel, and neodymium, and dunium, and geranium, and iron, and erasium, and ruthenium, uranium, and europium, and zirconium, and vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and acidine, and radium, and gold, bactidinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium, and atrium, and terbium, and actinium, rubidium, boron, and even it though cuz there's homium and helium and hafnium and erbium and phosphorus and